0: let's get started for tonight. As you know, we're studying the sermons of Matthew. We started with the Sermon on the Mount, made it through that, um, uh, which was really awesome. Then we did the missional discourse, talked about how Jesus sends us out into the world to advance his kingdom, um, gives us kind of the why of our lives, gives us purpose, talks about how gives our life meaning to be on mission with God uh, so that we don't just live and die and not know why, that we actually have a reason to do what we do. And we talked about, you know, what if instead of asking each other, hey, what do you do? We ask each other, hey, why do you do? You know, how much fun that would be to get someone's answer, you know, once you find out what they do. So you go, why? Why do you do that? Like what's, you know, and the answers get real thin real quick. If you're not on mission with God, advancing God's kingdom, then your answers for why you live get pretty thin. So he gives us our why. Then he also tells us that every single thing we do, all the way down to, um, giving a drink of water to a kid or helping someone unload a moving van um, advances god 's kingdom and and uh, and he rewards us for it. Um, then two weeks ago, we started into a new discourse, the parabolic discourse um, and we talked about how uh, these parables are kind of funny teachings um, because they uh, they 're not just word pictures that Jesus actually tells us that the more invested we are in his kingdom, the more um, kind of committed we are, the more we get out of these, that they're the, he said that those who have will get even more, like the the more into the kingdom you are, the more you get out of these. And they tend to be kind of meaningless to those that are on the outside, um, kind of confusing and frustrating. Uh, we talked about how when Jesus gave us, he started this sermon with a Parable, and the disciples like pulled him aside and were like, Hey, dude, what are you doing? There's people here and you're talking nonsense. Nobody even gets it. And he was like, That's kind of the point. And, and so, uh, so our prayer through this has been kind of, and really through this entire parabolic sermon, is, is that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes and open our ears and open our hearts so that we can understand and get something out of this. And so, um, so in that line, I'll ask that while I'm preaching, you guys pray that. Just be praying, be praying for me. I'm exhausted, frankly. We had a long week and a long weekend, and I was up late last night writing this sermon, which that's the latest I've written one. So um, I don't even know what's in here. It's going to be fun to find out. Like it was, when you write a sermon, you know, at two in the morning, you have no idea the next day what's in there. It might be gibberish, but um, but pray that the Holy Spirit uses whatever it is. Um, we had a we had a very busy week, but I still feel like God has a message for us tonight. Um, so be praying that that comes out. Last week, we dove into our very first parable with the parable of the sower, and we talked about these four different kinds of soil and how, uh, and how the first two, or the, the first one and the last one are kind of diametrically opposed around this word understanding, that the first ones brought forth no fruit, didn't even grow because they didn't understand the word, and the last one that brought forth fruit was because it did understand. And we talked about this word understanding means to make connections, to be able to connect the word of God to your own heart and say, Hey, that's me that this is about. This is, this is, this is my story that this is telling. And this is, you know, somehow this has my address. Like this is going straight into my heart to make that connection. And I thought about it in terms of um, the road to Emmaus, we've talked about this in here before. I don't know how many you remember, but right after Jesus rose, there's these two disciples Cleopas and the other ones not even named. They're kind of no names. We don't even know um, like where they came from or how they be- began to follow Jesus. But they're walking away from Jerusalem, going home to Emmaus. And if you look for Emmaus today, you can't even find it. They kind of say this is where we think it probably was, but such a small, insignificant town, it doesn't even really have like a permanent. We know exactly where Emmaus was. They just kind of guess. And These guys are going away from Jerusalem, and Jesus comes up and talks to them, and they're down and they're they're bummed and. And he kind of comes and says, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what are you talking about? It's it's the only news out there. Jesus, we thought he was the Christ, and he died, and blah, blah, blah." And and then some people came and said he rose, and we don't even know what's happening. And so Jesus started talking to them. It says he's beginning with Moses. He unfolded how the the Messiah had to go this route, and how the Messiah um, had to die. And they get uh, to Emmaus, and they're getting to their house, and Jesus is going to just walk on. He starts to leave and they're like, no, please come have dinner with us. And so he comes back and they go inside and sit down and it says, and Jesus took the bread and gave thanks and broke it. And when he broke it, the Bible says their eyes were opened. I think that's that point of understanding. That's that connection. Something happened in the breaking of the bread. And then they said, did our hearts not burn within us when he spoke with us, by the way? So the word was burning in them like they were receiving the seed. They were receiving the word. But they didn't have all they were lacking was that understanding. And when something about the breaking of bread and it all clicked, and that click is what we're talking about. Something about that understanding. Now I get it. Now I understand what this was about. And what was awesome is when says that as soon as he broke the bread, their eyes were open. He vanished from them, and they just immediately beelined it back to Jerusalem. You could tell they were kind of running from where they were supposed to be. They were heading out of Jerusalem, and the second they realized who he was, they turned around and went straight back in. It was kind of that that turnaround repentant symbol, like to go back where you know you're supposed to be. But, so these two kind of had opposite, this first one and the last one kind of had opposite things around this word understanding. Um, and then uh, then we talked about the two in the middle had um, uh, almost the same reaction around two different things. The one couldn't handle the negative parts of receiving the word. Says so it couldn't handle the persecution, the tribulation, the discomfort that came from hearing the word. And these weren't like special discomforts. Jesus likened it to the sun, the same sun that shines on all the, the garden. But these couldn't handle that, that uh, heat, and so they withered. And then the other ones couldn't handle the, the more positive things. This is the cares of this world, which the Bible in multiple places uses to refer to our family, our spouses, our, our homes, just the general, our vocation, just the, the general workload, the good things about our life. Um, it said that these actually choked out the word, that, that these good things in our life can get so much power over us if we're not careful. They can pull so hard on us that they can actually choke out the fruit where we no longer bear fruit, which is what we at the end came to find out that the purpose of this parable is the fruit. It's about the production at the end. And we talk about how fruit is how the soil feeds the world. It's how the soil makes the world better. It's how the soil uh, blesses the world, that the seed is not about us. It's about us blessing the world. And, and, uh, and we ended talking about how the farmer is the one who has to clear the soil. So yeah, we produce as much fruit as we can, all the while praying that Jesus would clear our heart, that he would take out the rocks, that he would pull the weeds, that he would make us good soil so that we can receive the seed. And so tonight we're going to start into a brand new parable. Um, this is the parable of the wheat and tares. This is kind of a formative parable uh, for me and really for our church because we've kind of talked about this from the very beginning. Um, and this is another one that Jesus explains to us. He kind of breaks down all the details of this one and gives us kind of all the, uh, the... This is the last one he's going to do that with, by the way. After this, he just kind of leaves them up in the air. But he, uh, he explains this one again. And it's kind of a good thing because we actually find that uh, a few of the metaphors have changed, which tells us that in these parables... You can't just lock into where seed is or, or like the, the dirt is one thing and it's going to be the same in every single parable because they're not. Because in the first one, if you'll remember, we were the dirt. And we were, and he, and he said, you know, the, the dirt, the condition of the dirt reflected the condition of our hearts and the way we receive the seed. In this one, he actually says that we are actually the plant. So we're not the dirt in this one. We're the plant. And I think he actually said it uh, this way. Whoops. If you want my title, there it is. Primum non no seer. We'll get to that. Uh, well, I thought I had it. Maybe I didn't put that in there. Okay, we'll get there. But he says, uh, he answered and said, he who sows good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed are the sons of the kingdom. So this time the seed and the plant that comes from it are actually the people. So the metaphors have changed. So we got to be careful that we understand that, um, that we're, we're talking a little different here to keep it straight. But in this parable... Um, uh, or where, where did I go? Oh, okay. So as I... We'll skip that part. As I started praying about um, how to teach this passage and where to go with this, because I was super familiar with this, because this passage has, has really been one of the ones that's kind of shaped my life, and as I kind of decided what direction to go, I actually found last week's message kind of preaching at me about this week's message, and that being that I wanted to hang with something that we could understand not just know. So I want to, because there is some knowledge, there are some things in the Bible that we can know but not necessarily understand. Um, They don't really have like an impact on our life. I think a lot of times eschatology is one of those. Eschatology is the study of end things, last things. So like end time studies, exactly how Jesus is going to come back, what's going to happen when he does, blah, blah, blah. And usually those are just because we want to know things. Like usually that has very little bearing on how we live our lives, right? Like usually, you know, the conclusion is awesome. He's coming back. I need to, you know, advance his kingdom as much as I can while I can. That's really the only understanding part we can gain from it. So I don't want to spend a lot of time digging into that part. And so I say that to say, if you're hoping that I'm going to like really dive into this harvest at the end and what exactly this means, you're uh, you're going to be disappointed because that's not where I'm going. Because um, I really don't, I feel like that part's almost, he says it like it's a foregone conclusion. He really says it like, this is the way it's going to be, blah, 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 That's kind of above our pay grade. If you read the characters in that part, go back and read it. We, we have very little part in that. And so I don't really feel like that does us much good to try to pick that apart. What I want to do is stick to this stuff that actually kind of has a, uh, an impact on the way we live and can hopefully encourage us and enrich our lives. Um, so I want to pull out three themes from this passage. They're kind of um, a little bit subtle maybe, but uh, I think they can speak to us tonight. And the first one is every garden and therefore every garden metaphor is about process. This is a parable where Jesus talks about planting, sprouting, because when everything sprouts, they start to notice that they've got two different things growing here. Um, the weeding Stage where the reaper's are like, hey, do you want us to pull up the bad stuff? What do you want us to do here? The growth stage where they just wait and then the harvest. So this parable speaks of time. This parable, parable speaks about the passing of time and a process. We, we read this like it all happens kind of like that. But if you play this parable out, this is a full growth season. This is a full process, which sometimes we struggle with because we're a now culture. We are in, We are an immediate culture where we like the instantaneous. We're a culture where microwaves are too slow, like now. Um, we like things immediately. Like if our phone slows down for just like half a second, we're like, ugh, this thing's terrible. Ugh, like waiting for a page to load. Like that is the, that information is so ridiculously fast compared to what anyone in this room knew 10 years ago. And we're like, oh, this stupid phone is so slow. That took like five seconds to load. We're a now culture. Have you guys noticed how, how homemade now means exotic? Like, like somebody will bring like, and you're like, they'll bring bread, like the most basic food that humans have made forever. And they'll be like, oh, is this homemade? Like, like that's like, like somebody imported it from Peru or something. Like, is this homemade bread? You know, you're like, we just don't, we don't do process anymore. Everything's immediate. You know, like we, we want everything fast. And I think this affects our, our Christianity because we're a, we're a was saved people. I was saved. We like to speak in a, in a, like, like this is done, it's gone, it's over. Like the, the salvation process is a past thing, it happened, it's finished. Like we're, that was a, we're not a process. We don't think of it in terms of process. We see the sinner's prayer as a finish line, right? That's how we generally think of it. I've, no, I prayed, I, I got saved when I was seven or whatever. Like we, we like to think of it in terms of, of done. Like it's, that's finished. There is no process. It was just an instantaneous thing, and we don't really know what to do um, with process when it comes to salvation. Like we, it is hard to talk about. It's hard to define, but we don't know how to how to work with Paul's statement that we would work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Like those those passages kind of confuse us because we see salvation as a decision of once and done kind of thing. And I think sometimes we cheapen it when we say, well, you were saved in an instant. And then then the rest is just how to figure out how to behave in light of that. I feel like that cheapens that working out your salvation. It's more than just behavior. Or we'll embrace like a a theology whereby you can lose your salvation and then you have to come up and get re-saved. And really, even in the re-saving, all we're saying is we're offering you a new finish line. And then when you get there, then it's done again. Like... You know, we're really not embracing a process. We're just embracing multiple finish lines. You know, but still, it's not, it's, it's not much of a process. I can't define a clean theology around it, but I, I feel like salvation is an every second kind of thing. We're being saved. And, and I, one of the questions when I would work with youth that we would have question nights, we'd let them ask whatever questions we want. And the most common question was always, How do I know if I'm saved? And I, I, finally got to where my answer was, was, well, do you want to be saved? Well, yeah. <laughs> then done. Like in this moment, you're saved. And if, and if you want to look back at that time you prayed in third grade, awesome. If you want to look at this moment, awesome. Like, what's it? If you want to be saved, be saved. Like, like ask Jesus into your heart. Like, it, and it's fine if that's every second of your life. Just live in that moment. So I think it's like. Um, It's like a tension between God has known us since the foundation of the world and I'm a newborn Christian every second. I'm brand new and and his mercies are new every morning and I'm I'm in awe of him like I just met him every moment. I think that's that's the best way to live. Like we have always been his and I am freshly his all at the same time. I think it's a process. And gardening metaphors fit this reality well. Because how would you talk about a plant in terms of the way we think of salvation? When did the plant come alive? Like was it the second those like first little the seed cracked open and the first little tendrils of roots came out? Or is it the second you see the green break through the grass? Is that when it's officially alive? Or is it when it, you know, is now can stand on its own and it's and you know it's not gonna just die in the first frost, or is it when it actually brings forth fruit? Like how do you how do you define life in terms of a plant that has a full growth cycle? It's tough, which is why I like these uh, these metaphors. Plants are about process. And we get this with our kids. Like we do this with our kids. We do this when they're learning to walk. You know, where, where we, we stand them up and, you know, and they... they take their first step, and we're like, yeah, we celebrate, and they didn't even walk, they just kind of fell forward for the first time, and you're like, yeah, you did awesome, and we cheer, and we celebrate, and we pick them back up, and we let them try again, like, can you imagine if we talk to our kids the way we talk to, like, like, fairly new Christians, where it's like, dude, you've been standing up for, like, three weeks now, it is time to get your act together, like, this falling thing is kind of ridiculous, like, you cannot keep doing this. Like, you are in now. You have got to start walking. This is, you know, we don't do that. We know that there's a process to this. Like, and they're going to fall sometimes. And, and we don't shame them. We pick them up. And awesome, that is so cool. You're doing great. You're doing so amazing. And we encourage them and we, we build them up. Because we know it's a process. What if Jesus... What if we actually imagined Jesus doing that with us? What if we said, you know, every time we fall, he's like, oh, that was amazing. You you went so long. Get up and keep going. Like, come on, let's do it again. What if we heard this encouraging voice instead of this, oh, I screwed up again. It suck. Like, what if we heard him going, holy cow, you went so long that time. Let's go again. Stand back up. You're doing great. What if we heard that voice? But instead we we tend to go you know, Jesus loves you even if you crawl but he loves you too much to let you keep crawling. Stand up and walk. Like we kind of have this expectation, you know, for immediate change. I had this happen recently with uh, Josiah, my oldest, um, had this kind of new discovery of the way God works in his life and he called me excited about, you know, something God was doing and and I noticed when Josiah was little, um, he was so ambitious I could put a toy like just out of his reach and he would flip and flop and roll and scoot until he could get it. And then I would just scoot it a little bit more and I could get him to go all the way across the room, you know, just chasing this little ball and just keeping it barely out of his reach, which was why 20-year-olds should not have kids. But, um, no, I'm kidding. So yeah, I would, just, I would just drag him around the room. Look at this, he never gives up. He just keeps chasing it and it was fun. But, uh but I would encourage him each step of the way. Come on, buddy, you got it, you got it, you got it just as I would move it. But I noticed when he called me and he was telling me all this thing, like nothing in me had the instinct to go, dude, you have so many more like revelations when I was your age, I blah uh, blah you know. No, I was like, That is so awesome, that's amazing, knowing he's got twenty more of those coming, but I was so excited for this step that it, you know, I encouraged him, we celebrated and I cheered again. It never ends. So I literally did with Josiah 25 what I did with him at one, you know. I encouraged him in this step and encouraged him toward the next one. And I think God does with this with us. I, I thought of it this week in this way where we have a tendency when, when God gets a hold of our life, we'll say that this, this music stand is, is where we are, right? And God, God stands here and he says, come here, come on. And we take a step toward him and as we step, he steps away. And he's like, come on, come on, come on. And as we step toward him, he steps away. And he's like, good, good, good. Come on, come on, come on. And he keeps urging us toward him. But this gap here stays. And sometimes we can get frustrated because we're like, gosh, I still have so far to go before I'm with him, before I'm like him. And this gap can frustrate us. And it's not until, you know, every once in a while that we go like this and we look at this gap that we go, holy cow, he's brought me so far. He's brought me so far. Like I'm, and and sometimes... This gap can look huge cuz we're like man I've still got so far to go and he's still calling me onward and I'm still like I've been I've been at this for so long I've been walking with God for 26 years and I've still got all these issues I still have so far to go before I'm like him until we turn directions and we find out that this is the gap that's amazing this is the process gap this is the one that says you know look how far you've grown and sometimes it's just that you're still standing sometimes it's just that you're I've made it this far and I haven't bailed yet. I'm still here. I'm still going. Doug actually gave me a word for it. It was all like we were talking and he said, I'm a mess, but I'm a better mess. <laughs> I, thought that was, I literally I was like, stop. And I got my journal out wrote down. I am a better mess. Like I that will now be my metaphor. I'm a better mess. That's that's my goal. Like hashtag goals to be a better mess. This is why I feel like we have to uh how we have to look back at, at where we were what God has brought us out of and I always hear God's voice ahead of us cheering us on cheering us to take the next step pulling us and drawing us deeper into him but always celebrating where we've come from if we don't do this we can grow weary in and well doing and I do this with my garden I have a problem with this with my garden this is my garden right now Well, maybe my thing goes to sleep no oh, darn it that's my garden which is pretty cool. I have, uh, it's mostly Esther's garden, but I help a little bit sometimes. Um, and this, what's neat is this, you know, a couple years ago it was just grass and then at the beginning of this year it was just a field full of dirt. But we've got butternut squash over here on the right. We've got jalapenos that are kind of struggling in the middle and I think that's cantaloupe, or pumpkins, pumpkins. Sunflowers over there. I don't know why we have those, but they're fun to look at. We've got Mustard seed cucumbers, all this stuff. And when I go out there, all this green that we've created out of dirt in a couple of months, and all I can see is this. I go out every day looking for orange. I just want a little bit of orange. I I do all that work for tomatoes. That's the only reason I do it. That's the only thing I want is some tomatoes. And I go out every day and my tomatoes are still completely green. And I skip the whole process because all I want is the fruit Like, all I want is the end result. And so I walk into this amazing garden and go, and leave every day because it's not where I want it to be. Like, what I want is a a fresh garden-grown tomato every morning. That's all I want. And and sometimes I miss the joy of the garden because I'm waiting for the end result. And we can do that. We can sometimes miss the joy of the garden and all the green and all the beauty because we're not where we want to be because we're so frustrated that we've got further to go yet. And kind of like Josiah when he was one, we don't realize that it's because God is constantly moving the ball. And he's, that's how he gets us across the room. That's how he draws us across the room is by staying ahead of us. I tell you what, the only thing to truly fear is when you feel like you've got, you've got him. You feel like you're right where you need to be. You feel like you've, you've, you've arrived. You feel like you're all good. When you reach that spot is when it's spooky. Because it means you've probably gotten completely off course. So hidden in this parable is a long process. This is a growth process. And we read it quick like it happened in a day. But this is, this is a season. This is about planting and waiting for a little bit of green to show up. Then a little bit of green shows up. And then you, you water it like crazy. And then it's standing up and you see your first flowers. And you're like, yes, we've got flowers. That means we've got fruit coming. And then the flowers start to turn to fruit and you got the beginning of your fruit and then you sit there and watch it till it ripens and you're ready to pick it. This is a long, slow process. And that's what this parable is about. It speaks of of process. But it also speaks of relationship. This is a parable about relationship. Let them both grow together until the harvest. Grow together. If you think about this As a narrative, this is the complexity of the plot. Like this is the tension in the plot is, is otherwise it's just a story of, of what happens. The tension is when they go, should we, should we pull the weeds? Like that's what creates the complexity in this narrative is, is should we, should we pull the weeds? He's like, no, if you pull the weeds, you're going to tear up the wheat. Like if you pull the weeds, you're going to tear up the good crop. And that's what creates the tension here. Now, there is no other tension in this narrative. There is no other. There's nothing else really for us to take home other than, than the tension of the togetherness, that we have weeds and wheat together. The drama comes from the community that's present here. And sometimes we get really excited that Jesus leaves the 99 to come and find the one, and he does. But what we sometimes miss is that once he catches the one, he takes him right back to the 99. Like he doesn't just take the one I hope that's what he does. I hope he doesn't go, You've escaped too many times, you're going on the plate. Like, hopefully it's not the slaughterhouse. Hopefully he takes him back to the flock. And says, you know, look, you're you 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 got away and I and you're and you I came and got you and you're important to me. I don't want to lose you. I'm not going to sacrifice, I'm not going to let you get away. Come back to the flock. It's about relationship. And this is one of our core beliefs. We as a church believe that we've been called to Redeem the four broken relationships from the fall in Genesis 3. One of which is our broken relationship with others. That, that we believe that in the, in the original design, it was not good for man to be alone. Before there was sin, before there was anything, God said, it's not good for you to be alone. You need community. And so the God of community, the triune God of community, built humans for community because we're made like Him. It's not good for us to dwell alone. So gardens are innately relational. This is not a plant in a pot. This is not, you know, this is not a flower that you put in a pot and put in your windowsill. This is a garden. This is these are crops where there's always more crops, and it's about how the crops live together. This is why Jesus spends so much time talking about forgiving and loving and serving and making peace and and all these uh, terms that are completely relational. How do you how do you love or Forgive or serve or make peace when you're all by yourself. Like there's very little to do alone. These are these are relational concepts that Jesus is constantly pushing on us. The gospel is intensely relational. It's always intensely relational. And and sometimes in America we've kind of embraced this, you know, just me and God. That that salvation, that that our relationship with God, is really just about me and Him. That, that it's, you know, as long as I've got God, I've got everything and blah, blah, you know. And and that's just not true. If, if it's just you and God, the first thing out of his mouth is going to be, it's not good for you to live alone. Not good for you. That's what he said to Adam. No sin, just him and God. Just Adam and God. And he was like, no, it's not good for you to be alone. You need community. You need people around you. The gospel is always relational. In fact, if the gospel is not real, if this is all made up, if this is all just, you know, a fairy tale, then by all means do not forgive. It makes absolutely no sense. You might get hurt again. If the gospel is not real, you need to you need to get even. Honestly. And so bad that they don't ever think of hurting you again. If the gospel is just a moral story, it's just it's just a moral fable, then you need to protect yourself. By all means. You look out for you. You watch your own. You make sure your candidate gets elected. You make sure no one takes any of your rights. You, you protect yourself to the fullest because this is the one shot you get. If the gospel is false, then, then, then none of that makes sense. Forgiving, serving, loving makes no sense. If the gospel is not real, look out for number one, period. It's the only logical thing to do. But if the gospel is real, if the, if, the, if the innocent and the holy died for the guilty and the unholy and that brought forth life, if that is real, if Jesus, the only one worthy of throwing stones, decided to squat down and draw redemptive pictures in the dirt instead, if that's real, if He decided to be with the ungodly instead of the religious elite, how could we do any, anything else? If the gospel is real, if this story is true, then the only way to live is by forgiving and loving because that's what brings forth life. So ultimately the question comes down is, do you believe the gospel is real? That's the real question. Because if you don't, then absolutely look out for number one. But if you do, then this is the road. This is what it demands of you. Life's greatest pleasures and greatest pains will always come in the context of relationship. Always. The most pain you will ever feel will be in the context of relationship. The most satisfaction and joy you'll ever feel will come in the context of relationship. How could the gospel be about anything less than relationship, than how we relate to one another and how we relate to God? It's about loving God and loving people. And that's what it's about. That's what it's always been about. And the garden metaphor nails this because gardens are all about relationship. It's all about being together. And our third thing that I want to get. Whoops. Where, oh yeah, 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 sorry. It's primum non no seer. Anyone know what that means? You may Google it when they saw it on my title. No one? Awesome. I figured everybody would look it up. He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Anybody want to take a guess? you know their Latin real well? <laughs> Primum, first, non, no sir. First, do no harm is what that means. It's an old medical term. They, they think it almost went all the way back to Hippocrates. But... First, do no harm. When a doctor takes the Hippocratic Oath, that's the very first thing they'd say, is first I will do no harm. It basically means, above all else, sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do harm trying to do good. And so, it's a, it's a medical term that all doctors have to swear, that first they will do no harm. And I think this is the main point of Jesus' parable. Like I say, this, this connection between the wheat and the tares is the only real tension in this parable. It's the only real um, uh, complexity uh, in the story is what to do with the wheat and tares. And Jesus' answer is do no harm. Let them grow together. And this seems simple when we think of it in terms of gardening, but if you know anything about gardens, you know weeds are dangerous. Weeds are not good for the plant. In fact, when I... I was—I kind of had this message bounce around my head all, all week. And Esther and I went out in the garden, and she's she's pulling weeds. And I'm like, "Baby, you can't pull any more weeds. You're messing with my, you're messing with my parable here." And, uh, and she, I think she said something mean or something. I don't know. But she, uh, yeah, she kept pulling weeds. She ignored me. Um, she didn't let them grow together. But, uh, but you know, the weeds are not good for the garden. They're not. So this isn't, this isn't a simple thing that Jesus says here. This is, this is difficult. This is challenging. Because he, anybody who knows gardening knows weeding is a huge part of it. You have to pull the weeds. You have to. Weeds take resources that would otherwise be the gardens. They, they steal nutrients from the soil that limits the amount of nutrients the, the, the good foods can get. They can shade out and choke out the plants that you want. This is not an emotionless statement that he makes. Just let them grow together. This, isn't, this, this is not an easy statement. And, and this is an agricultural um, context. These, the people that, he, that he's talking to would have been very familiar with agricultural ideas. So this would have been fairly shocking to them. The idea that you would leave a garden unweeded. That you would leave the crop unweeded that you would just let them grow together. This is tough what he says. And I think this this simple concept of do no harm can actually help us. Because in our context it's it's grace and holiness. We have these two pressures in 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 church that we call grace and holiness. Grace being I I love you and I accept you exactly the way you are because of who you are, not what you do, and, and I love, you know, you for you and I see you the way God sees you. And I know you don't deserve it. I know, you know, you're not worthy of it, but I love you anyway. That's grace. So you just come exactly as you are. It doesn't matter. And holiness is we've been called to be set apart, to be different, to be like God. Jesus said, Be holy as your Father in heaven is holy. You know, and the Bible is full of, you know, separate yourself from the sinful things. And so we have these two tensions of grace and holiness. And a lot of times churches will will talk about like churches that draw toward holiness will will talk about about grace churches with this attitude of, you know, oh everybody wants to talk about his grace. Everybody wants to talk about God's love, but, you know, they forget that he's also holy. Like it's like it's this either or tension. Like like we either have to have grace or we have to have holiness. You can't have both. Like that's the way that's the way we kind of live. So we either we either accept each other the way we are, or we judge each other because of where we're falling short. And I think this this concept gives us um, maybe some boundaries whereby we can pursue holiness, because we can say yes, be holy. Yes, desire to be like God. Yes, desire um, to to adhere to scripture as much as you possibly can, but do no harm in so doing. Like, yes, and, and when we hit a spot where it's like, but this person's got problems, they got issues, they're not where they should be. They're like, yeah, do no harm. You'll do more damage trying to root them up. You know, so it gives you a chance to, to, to know what's most important and then what comes after. Because Jesus is like, no, it, the, the damage you can do yanking away at the garden, trying to make it perfect. And this is this is what gets me. Sometimes I think per, the desire for perfection can actually be a temptation to tear up the garden. And, and it's hard because it's, a, it's usually a good motive. The reason we want holiness, the reason we want people to live like Christ, the reason we want people to obey Scripture is good. That's, that's a good impulse. That's a good desire. And sometimes Satan will take that good desire and use it to send you in to tear up the garden. They said, well, we can't have this kind of person, we can't have that, and this kind of person doesn't belong here, and blah, blah, blah. The next thing you know, the entire garden is uprooted, and the wheat can't even grow. That's the metaphor he's doing us. First, do no harm. Sometimes we say, you know, hate the sin, but love the sinner. And that's kind of vague and hard to grasp because love is such a relative concept. You know, we'll say, "Well, I told him he's going to hell because I love him." You know, like, you know, we can, you know, we can, we can mix that up. But I think, I think I like the phrase, "Hate sin, but do no harm to the sinner." I like do no harm. That like I like the. I feel like that gives me more guidance than just love the sinner. Do no harm. It allows us to be obedient to God's word without allowing our zeal to hurt other people. So in no way are we saying that grace is better than holiness or more important than holiness. That's not the case. We're called to be holy people. We're called to be separate and set apart for God. We should pursue holiness together. But first, do no harm. First, do no harm. There will be times when it will be logical to hate, but don't hate. There will be times when you'll be tempted to say, you can't be a Christian and do whatever. And you might be right. Still, let them grow together. Do no harm. There will be a million things that can make us want to draw into our tribe. And close the doors and say, you know, those people we don't like, those people are different, those people we don't accept. Those, like, there's a, there's a million temptations to do that. And the, and the motivation will feel right because you're like, I want to be closer to God, I want to be like God, I want to be holy. Like, and that, that temptation will feel right. And yet Jesus says it's not right. He says, let them grow together. Don't go pulling weeds because you'll tear up the garden so how do we respond to this I believe God wants this word to be encouraging I do I believe he wants to tell us tonight to do no harm do no harm to the garden gardens are relational and the gospel is about building up and not tearing down it's about doing good and not evil it's about reconciling and not dividing it's about redeeming things fixing things it's about together, not alone. And so I think we need to build each other up. I think we need to encourage each other. I think we need to be redeemers, be reconcilers. We need to be about putting together and caring about each other and, and loving people. And I think it's important that we, we even reflect that on ourselves. Do no harm to yourself. I think we have to embrace the process and know that and hear God's voice encouraging us and, and drawing us on and cheering for us. So I hope that tonight we might hear God as we go to the table and as we sing this last song. I pray you might hear God cheer, cheering for us and urging us to take another step. And when we fall, I, I hope we hear God saying, you did awesome, stand up, let's go again. God never shames us. He never shames us. That's not in His repertoire. We can't earn anything from Him. We don't have to earn anything from them. Can you imagine when your kid is one, like loving them more because they took a second step? Like, I didn't love you a minute ago, but now I just love you. Like, it's absurd. We love them because they're our kid like we love them cuz they're amazing like in, and and they they just bring joy to our hearts has nothing to do with what we do it's nothing to do with what we do has to do with who we are there's nothing we can do to earn his love when when Jesus was trying to come up with the word for to describe the holy spirit when he would send the holy spirit he chose the word comforter like of all the of all the things That we would need as broken humans, you know, challenger or pusher or, you know, coach or, you know, could have been a lot of metaphors for what we were going to need to succeed. And he chose comforter. I'm going to send you a comforter. I'm going to send you someone to make you feel good, to encourage you, to, to say you are enough. You are amazing. Take another step. Come on, you can do this. That's what I think God wants for us. That's that's the way I feel like He wants to. I feel like a lot of people lately have been wrestling with this idea of of God as our Father, as being a child of God. It's been in a lot of the lyrics of our music lately, and a lot of people are trying to wrap their eyes around this. and And for me, that's that's what that's my favorite part of being a dad. Is come on, you're amazing, man! You did so good, and that's so blah blah blah, and, and just that joy in my heart when I. See my kids do another thing, and and just how much how much I I love being a dad, and I love them, and it has nothing to do. Like never has my love been challenged, you know. Where I like I've been mad at them, sure. Been frustrated, sure, quite often. As we speak, (laughs) but. Never have I even remotely considered not like that, that somehow any of that makes me love them less. That's never even been in the cards. And yet somehow we act like I'm more loving than God. Like somehow we feel like God um, is, is like has a stricter line or has less love to give than I do. And it's just not the case. He is love. And so as we go to the table together, and as we imagine this, this Jesus who is willing to give his body to be broken for us and his blood to be spilled for us, um, that we would see that depth of love and that that's what it's all about. It's about how much he loves us.